Let's start in prayer. Gracious Father, it's a great blessing and privilege to be able to gather with your people this day. It's that uh, we would be able to uh, set aside the worries of the week, the worries of life, to set our minds on you. And as we take time this morning to look at the life of uh, John Chrysostom, we ask that it would be an encouragement, that we would remember that all is of grace, and that we would uh, find strength in what we hear. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, in preparing this lesson, I was thinking back to the first Sunday school lesson. I had the uh, privilege of teaching here at the church. It was uh, about five years ago, and it was titled, Why History is Important. And I, as I was thinking back on that, I remembered that it, um, in preparing the lesson, I had this impression that most people dislike history, and most people find history boring, that they find it dull, that they find it irrelevant. And so part of the lesson that I had uh, created was trying to counter that. But what I found afterward, after doing this lesson, that there were, were quite a few people in the church who really do enjoy history, and that I had presumed wrongly, and that we are a church that, by and large, does appreciate history, though I know that's still not everybody in here. Um, but hopefully this series, for those of you who aren't convinced that history is relevant, important, helpful, and even enjoyable at times, um, Hopefully this series can help you out with that. But if there was a case to be made against history, if there was an argument for the irrelevance of studying old dead guys, um, a, a superficial glance of John Chrysostom could serve as that case. For Cr John Chrysostom had some strange ideas. John Chrysostom had some ideas that we would actually find very offensive and some ideas that we would strongly disagree with. Uh, he was an ascetic. He really uh, downplayed uh, the goodness of earthly pleasures as good gifts from God. And he took that sometimes to an extreme to almost um, outright denying the goodness of creation. He believed that perpetual virginity was the ideal state and that Adam and Eve would have remained virgins had they not fallen into sin. He had this doctrine of holy deception in which he found justification for way more sorts of deceit and lies than we would find uh, justified by scripture. Uh, he also possibly had a, a slightly less than orthodox Christology, but that, that will give him on, a pass on because some of these things were still being worked out in the church, and he definitely didn't propose one. And his doctrine of grace really wasn't fully developed, and that's something that even the later reformers will be, even though they may appreciate him, would be concerned about. So you may, you may see this guy who has these, some strange ideas and some positions that, in fact, if he held doggedly to some of the positions which he taught, he wouldn't have been allowed as a member in our church. You might see, see, that's exactly why we don't need to... Uh, study history. What can, what can we learn from a guy like this? He's weird. He has these bad ideas. We just need to stay in the 21st century where things are all fully developed and safe and good. But, but if we were to dismiss him because of these caricatures or these things, some of them which were true, uh, we'd be at a great loss. Part of that is that we would be missing many of the positive things that he does have to offer us, and we'll see much of that later on. But part of that would also be because we really don't understand how to read and to study church history. We'd be failing to recognize the Reformation principle of church reformed, always reforming. That the church history is a story of development. 
took nearly 300 years to formulate our Christology. And um, it really took 1,500 years for a sound doctrine of justification by faith alone to be codified. I'm not saying that it wasn't there, uh, since it's an essential part of the gospel. It was there through church history, but it wasn't until the Reformation that we saw uh, a strong doctrine of justification by faith alone really clearly articulated in uh, confessions of the church. So the story of church history is one of development and of growth, and we should expect to see inconsistencies. We should expect to see people who didn't have their doctrine all in order, especially the further back we go in church history. And this is something that John Calvin absolutely understood. John Calvin quoted Chris Austin, according to my sources, uh, second only to Augustine in, in his confession, in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, and not everything he quoted was praise. It was mixed. There were points at which Calvin absolutely agreed with Chrysostom and appealed to him as an authority in certain areas, but at the same time, Calvin had no problem pointing out where Chrysostom was either in outright error or had an underdeveloped theology. But despite that, he wasn't uh, afraid to say that, with, that Chrysostom was without peer among the ancients as an interpreter of, Bi of the Bible, and this was Calvin's assessment of Chrysostom. The chief merit of our Chrysostom is this. He took great pains everywhere not to deviate in the slightest from the genuine plain meaning of Scripture, and not to indulge in any license of twisting the straightforward sense of the words. Now, I was hoping to find this like glowing praise with all these superlatives and wonderful things that he just would say about Chrysostom. And he doesn't quite use that language, but if you know Calvin, this is quite high praise to tell him, to say that uh, he was faithful to the scriptures, that, that he was striving to, to address the plain meaning of scriptures and clearly teach it. On top of Calvin benefiting from his teaching, Calvin also benefited from his practice. That was of electio continua preaching, preaching through books of the Bible. And it wasn't just Calvin who benefited from this. Before Calvin, there was Zwingli. And before Zwingli, there was Girolamo. I practiced this name so many times before, <laughs> hoping I wouldn't stumble over it. Girolamo, Girolamo Savonarola. And if you've never heard of that guy, uh, Doug wrote a good little biography of him, so you should check it out. And he could probably say the name correctly, I hope. So that said, he, he, he had an influence on this preaching through books of the Bible, preaching from the text to the people of God, not just jumping around to find texts that suit your purposes, but to uh, uh, make sure that the whole counsel of the word of God was being brought to the people by preaching through it. So all that said, this is the guy that we're going to be studying this morning. He's a man of faults, a man whose teaching didn't always measure up to the standard we would hope for, a man who would not be allowed as a member of the church if he maintained some of his positions. But a man who, nonetheless, we can learn from, and this man is John of Antioch, also known as John Goldenmouth Chrysostom. So this morning, the rest of our time this morning is going to really be broken into two parts. We're going to look at the life of John Chrysostom, and then we're going to look at the characteristics of his preaching that made him such an important figure uh, in our tradition. So, the life of John Chrysostom. Before we can get too far into the details of his life, we need to set the context 
Uh, so we're really talking about a period of transition from uh, what is called from the early church to what some have called the imperial church. And as we know, the, the, the earliest of church was a, was a persecuted church. Christianity was illegal in the Roman Empire. And that's not to say that there was continuous persecution and, and, uh, and uh, death threatening all Christians, but their faith was illegal. And you never knew when the hammer might be coming down on you. And another difficulty of the earliest of church before Christianity was made legal in the Roman Empire was that it was difficult for the church as a whole to assemble together to formulate doctrine. And uh, if you were here last week, you heard Titu talking about the distinction between formulating, what was the, was the other phrase you used? Formulating versus creating. versus creating doctrine. So and even as I mentioned about the formulation of doctrine earlier, of justification, it's not that the church is inventing things. It's not that the church didn't even teach some of these things, but finding the exact language, which is appropriate language for speaking about certain things which the Bible talks about. And it was hard for the church to assemble as a whole when Christianity was illegal. And so in 313, with the Edict of Milan, Christianity is officially made illegal in the Roman Empire. And then we see the church uh, within the next 15 years or so starting to develop its doctrine and, and codify it at the Council of Nicaea, where we get, begin to get clarity in the two natures of Christ. But it's a debate that doesn't end in 325. It continues on. Uh, where what we have today is the Nicene Creed is adopted in 381. And this is really what we could call the era, a golden age of the church fathers. Christianity is now legal. Christianity is growing. And we have some really phenomenal church fathers who, like what I said about Chrysostom earlier, none of them are perfect. None of them uh, had every, were at, none of them subscribed to the Westminster Confession. Let me put it that way. <laughs> but who we can find a great theological heritage in and a great amount to learn from as Christianity is beginning to flourish. But Christianity is also facing challenges with now being legal, and then even in, uh, I believe it was 382, now the official state, state religion, Christianity is facing two new, new challenges, which is the church is growing really, really fast uh, from... Some estimate 10% at the beginning of the 4th century up to 50 or 60% by the end. But with that rapid growth came a lot of nominalism. A lot of people who went and got baptized because they thought it you know, could give them some sort of security, but not uh, really following Christ with their lives. And there's also now new challenges in, in seeing the relation between the church and the state. How much, how much does the government get to say about the church's affairs? And so we really see this expansion of the church, the, the f formulating and development of doctrine in some of the political struggles are all circumstances which all we need to grasp as we look at the life of Chrysostom because they all come into play with the various conflicts that he has to deal with in his life. So I called him earlier John of Antioch, and that was because he was born in Antioch. And for those of you who are un, uh, familiar with Antioch, it's really one of the the uh, centers of Christianity in the early church, like an intellectual center uh, where there were influential figures and schools of thought that developed. And really oftentimes you might hear about Antioch and Alexandria. Alexandria being more known for its allegorical approach to scripture, whereas Antioch uh, became uh, more known for its more literal 
approach the scripture, uh, looking at a plain reading of it. And it's in Antioch, uh, not where uh, John Chrysostom was raised. Uh, he was the, um, his father was an important Roman official, uh, but died while John was young. So he was uh, raised uh, by his mother, uh, who remained a widow, widow for the rest of her life. And her name was um, Enthusa. And she's oftentimes compared to Augustine's mom. Augustine's mom has uh, really uh, developed as a, a character from church, church history with her own, of her own right uh, because of her faithful prayers for her son. Uh, when her son was wandering, showing no interest in the faith, uh, she, she continued to pray for him and uh, speak into his life. And Enthusa is, off, is similarly compared to Augustine's mom in that she was a committed Christian, concerned for her son. It's unclear whether or not Chrysostom identified as a Christian early on in age, but he certainly didn't seem to have much interest in living a faithful Christian life. And her prayers paid off as he came to faith later on in life, or at least came to a, like a full awareness of what following Christ entails. So he's raised in Antioch, and it, another thing about this era is to understand that this is an era of, of rhetoric. I forgot that one of the historians I read called it, I think, the uh, second sophist era. Uh, not that any of you find that detail that necessary, but um, the point is, we live in a, a very image-centered culture, a really a video, even video-centered culture, and it's hard to imagine the importance of spoken word in that time. But really, those who had mastered rhetoric, those who were master orators, were, a sort of cel- were raised to a sort of celebrity status in that time. People would flock to go hear someone speak, to present something, to hear their eloquence, to be uh, it really as a, as a form of entertainment. And not only that, but uh, the mastery of rhetoric was important for influence in politics and in, the, in culture as well. And this is the context in which he lived. And and in this situation, he was raised, he was taught and trained under one of the master rhetoricians of his age, Libanius. So Chrysostom would have gotten a classical education. I don't know that they had progressive education back then. I think uh, classical was the only option you really had. But uh, what, what really that means is that there was a lot of memorization that took place. And that the capstone of the ed- education was seen as rhetoric, as being able to take everything you've learned, your mastery of all these things that you know, and to be able to present it, not just clearly, but beautifully. And that was his education and his training. And not only was Libanius one of the great rhetoricians of his age, but Chrysostom was one of Libanius's greatest students. Almost everything I uh, read made sure to include this quote that uh, Libanius on his deathbed was asked, who would he like to have be his successor in the position of of, uh, a master of rhetoric? And he said, John, if only the Christians had not carried him away. Because it wasn't long after John had completed his education in rhetoric that he had a conversion experience of sorts. Now, we don't have the kind of uh, rich uh, spiritual biography of Chrysostom that we do of Augustine in his confessions. So it's hard to know, did he, like I mentioned a minute ago, did he, is this conversion one of absolute unbelief to belief? Or is it more of an awakening and a, and a realization of uh, the fact that Christ calls us 
to pick up our cross and to live a life of devotion to him. Uh, but regardless whether or not it was an absolute conversion or, or an awakening in his, in his mind of what it meant to follow Christ, it was shortly after his uh, completion of his uh, rhetorical studies in rhetoric that he committed himself to a, uh, the religious life and um, not, soon, not long after pursued a monastic lifestyle. A monastic lifestyle in which he was uh, really uh, eliminating a lot of the worldly pleasures and trying to live a life in which as much time of his day was devoted to reading the scriptures and prayer. But his mom didn't want him to go away and live in the mountains. She, her health was waning. She couldn't bear with the thought of him going out and living in isolation. So he tried to live the monastic lifestyle at home. And as I was reading about this and thinking about it, I kept picturing this idea of a nearly something, 30-something-year-old guy living in his mom's basement as a monastic. <laughs> I don't quite think that's the idea, but it was just this funny picture that coming into my mind. Um, but he lived with her, he was faithful to her, and he, he surrounded himself by men who were of like mind. He was at this time uh, being uh, guided by another uh, an educator named Miletus, who would be the guy on the right. So I actually, there's Libanius on the left, who was his, his pagan secular teacher, who instructed him in, in, in rhetoric. And then here we have Libanius, not Libanius, Diodorus of Tarsus, uh, who was his theological instructor. And that guy's an important guy because he, he is the one who is credited, at least from my, the sources I read, with instilling this literal reading of Scripture, not just in Chrysostom, but it was his influence that really steered the, the church in Antioch and the Antiochian school of thought in that direction as well. And we'll hear plenty of that later on. So he's living this monastic lifestyle in his mom's basement. Well, at his mom's house, at least. I don't know if they had a basement. Uh, with, in, in, in learning and devoting himself to scripture, and he's also surrounded himself with some other men. One of them was Theodore of some place that I can't pronounce. And, uh, he, and he, interestingly, would later on go to be the father of Nestorian theology, which isn't a, a good, good turn, which is unfortunate. But he was one of his buddies back here when they were when they're trying to figure out how to live the Christian life. Over the next couple of years, his mom's health continues to wane, and she, shortly after, passes. And it's at that point in time that he goes out to the mountains to be, do the real deal monastic thing, uh, living in a community up in the Syrian mountains. Before I move on, any questions? Anything that I've been unclear about? All right. So he goes out to the mountains. Um, and he's living this ascetic lifestyle. And I'll just say, we're, we're tempted to kind of look down upon that, kind of, uh, of this extreme ascetic lifestyle. And while we wouldn't fully endorse that approach to spirituality... Kind of hard to be, I mean, think about what he's doing. He's devoting his days to prayer and scripture. 
And during this time, he really lays a foundation for his later life in ministry where he will reemerge and be a preacher who's ministering to the people. And nothing I read said that he had the entirety of Scripture committed to memory, but he had very impressive amounts of the Bible committed to memory, which means that he, at any point in time, would have had access to so much just right at his fingertips to be able to speak to people, to be able to preach, and to the, the, the gift of having so much Scripture committed to memory is certainly one of the things that would have made him the man that he was and allowed him to have the kind of influence he had in his preaching ministry. So before we go down uh, and judge him too harshly for this, desire, this commitment to going out and devoting himself to a, a life that's almost exclusively of prayer and scripture reading, let's at least uh, see the way that God was able to use this, even if it was a little too extreme, to really bless him and then bless the people of God as well through it. Now, in talking about this era, there's this really entertaining, though most people admit that it's a bizarre myth, about his time there. And because of time, I'm not going to read it. But you can go look it up on Wikipedia if you want. It is in the Wikipedia page. And, um, and it, the, the, the best part is at the end when a baby who is nursing uh, wakes, uh, pops its head up and says, your sins have been forgiven. And so he knows that it was a sign from God that he had done enough penance to uh, actually have had his sins forgiven. So if, if nothing else, that's hopefully enough incentive to go read the rest of the story. <laughs> but his asceticism got to him. He uh, really overexerted himself uh, to a point of being uh, damaging his health. He had to actually be taken, taken back to Antioch and nursed back to health. But it wasn't long after his health was fully restored that he was made a deacon in the church, uh, which would not be the same thing as our deacons. It would have been more like a low-level uh, uh, position of the clergy. And so he's 33 years at this age. And I do believe that as a deacon, he was doing some preaching. Uh, and that by age 39, he was made a presbyter or a priest. And so it's in that capacity that he serves faithfully over the next a decade and a half or so in Antioch, preaching multiple times per week. Uh, son, it is funny in reading history how, how much even respected published sources like actually give you conflicting information about uh, things like this. Some, some gave the impression that he was preaching every day of the week. Some said, um, you know, three or four times a week. Regardless, he's preaching a lot. And uh, he develops a reputation as a respected preacher there, not just respected, but beloved. Uh, because he really wants to be among the people. Now, apparently at that point in time in history, it was uh, a worship service was the opposite of what we did in that the people stood and the preacher would sit. I cannot imagine preaching sitting down. seems like kind of a strange experience. I think It seems like maybe he was on a little bit of an elevated uh, platform while doing it, but still it seems like a strange thing. But... Uh, apparently, he had actually, it was the pulpit or whatever it was, was further back from the people, and he had it like either moved or found a closer place because he wanted to be in and among the people. And that was, that was just uh, a demonstration of what his attitude and his spirit was because he didn't want to be 
separate from the people he wanted to be in and among them and speaking directly to them. And it's through this uh, time period that we ended up getting uh, 600 of his sermons, which he's preached extemporaneously, but there was someone in the, in the audience who would be sitting there transcribing them as he preached. So his preaching, I'm going to talk more about his preaching later, but just to give you a foretaste, his preaching was marked by exposition of the text, but also being highly practical. And he had a reputation for preaching against the indulgent lifestyles of the rich, comfort to the poor, and strongly against paganism of the time. And as he continues to faithfully serve in Antioch, his reputation spreads throughout the empire. And about 12 years later, he is installed as the patriarch of Constantinople. And here we have another interesting apocryphal story. It is agreed pretty much by everybody that this was done secretly because they were afraid that the people of Antioch would rise up in a riot when they hear that he's being taken off to Constantinople. Um, So it is agreed that it was done secretly, but some say that he was actually taken against his will and that the emperor had sent people to chain him up and haul him all the way to Constantinople in chains, but that once he got there, he said, it must be God's will, so he stayed and willingly served. Though again, uh, it seems like a lot of people think that that was an apocryphal story. Uh, so, but he is, he's made the patriarch of Constantinople, a really high office in the church, in the capital city of the empire, And uh, Theodosius, who had, um, so in order to understand this, we need to talk a little bit of the politics of the day. So Theodosius had been the Holy Roman Emperor from 347 to 395. And so he, and it was 397 that uh, Chrysostom was brought to Constantinople. So it wasn't under Theodosius, but it was under uh, his son, Arcadius, who was now ruling in the east, I guess at the death of Theodosius, the empire was split between his two sons. And I found a rather entertaining quote which described the two sons. Where are we at? Oh, this. Okay. Honorius and Arcadius, indolent and inept. Arcadius was supposedly, supposedly ruled the east from his capital city of Constantinople, was in turn ruled by a certain Eutropius, a palace chamberlain who used his power to satisfy his own ambition and that of his cronies. So while Arcadius is the official ruler of the east right now, really it's one of his henchmen, Eutropius, who is ruling and abusing his power and using it and soaking up all the glory and making the most out of it to enrich his life and the life of his friends. And that that bust of him was so great. I was looking up the pictures last night, and Eve walked in when I had the Google thing up trying to find the best one, and she burst out in laughter. (laughs) But it's like, he really is a villain of the story, so it's, it's great. It really fits in with him because he does some wicked things, and I love the fact that he just looks like a criminal, looks like a bad guy. But he's not the only guy, villain in this story. We also have Eudoxia, Arcadius' wife. She is also, I mean, these characters, as you're reading about them, they're the stuff from 
uh, Disney cartoons, okay, of, of these, like, arch villains who, like, it's, they are so over-the-top wicked in what they do that you can just see them, like, scheming in a room trying to figure out how to shut this guy Chrysostom down. And there's one other important player in this scheming, and that was Theophilus, the patriarch of Alexandria. So what do these, what do these three people have against Chrysostom, who is now the patriarch of Constantinople? Well, um, Eutropius uh, didn't like the fact that he appealed to the poor so much. When Chrysostom was brought in as the patriarch, he thought he was going to be able to use him as a pawn to accomplish his purposes. But that wasn't the case. So he's made an enemy with Eutropius. Eudoxia, he, his preaching is so strong against the lavish lifestyles of the wealthy that she thinks that he's preaching directly against her, which he probably was. And then Theophilus of Alexandria, he's upset because when, uh, when Chrysostom was made the patriarch, he had been vying to get one of his men from Alexandria in that position. So he was kind of upset from the get-go. And then to make things worse, Chrysostom had shown some kindness to followers of origin, and they had been condemned, and they were supposed to be in exile, but it sounds like there was some injustice in the way things were being handled with them. And he showed kindness to them, not because he sympathized with their theological convictions, uh, but because he thought that there was some mistreatment in the way things had been handled in their case. All that said, all that to say, he, he does end up lasting for about five years as the patriarch of Constantinople, but eventually the scheming of these three, uh, especially Theophilus, who's able to pull this off, they, they, they pull together a synod called the Synod of Oak in 403 with trumped-up charges against him. And to make things worse, Theophilus pretty much recruits all the bishops who he knows dislike Chrysostom to be the ones who show up at this synod. And he's, uh, he's found guilty, and he's sent into exile. But he, uh, Chrysostom is so beloved by the people now of Constantinople, not only did, had he won over the love and affection of the people of Antioch, but he'd also now won over the love of the people of Constantinople, that there was rioting on his behalf, and to compound that, there was an earthquake. And it freaked Eudoxia out, and so she went and pled with her husband to reverse is being sent into exile. And it was. It, he was. He was reinstated and he wasn't sent off. But it wasn't long uh, later that uh, the scheming happened again and within the next year there was another synod called and then he was found guilty again. And that time he actually was sent into exile. Now this is another thing where I found some, some discrepancy. Was he sent to Caucasus or to the Caucasus Mountains? Caucasus, yes. I should know that, actually. Um, the Caucasus Mountains. I did more reading after I put this together. It sound, I, more sources seem to point to Kikuskus, or however it's said. I'm probably totally butchering that city. At least that's an un, a relatively unknown city, which would have fallen right kind of smack dab in the middle of Turkey. But something, being sent way out there to the Caucasus Mountains seems more um, dramatic. So, um, but he, either way, he's sent to exile. He's spending this time in exile, but he continues to have a huge amount of influence 
over the people through his letters. And there are actually people coming and visiting him and taking pilgrimages to see him. And his influence so upsets Eudoxia uh, that she then makes another appeal to her husband and they're able to get him cast further into exile at some unknown remote village along the Black Sea. And it's on his, on his journey there that he dies. Uh, it's, his health has never really been great uh, since his uh, monastic days. He'd always been a frail person, and the soldiers that were taking him didn't really seem to show any sympathy to the signs of his waning health, and it's in that time that he dies. And he's 60 years old, having had an amazing amount of influence on the church and even on the empire. And he had an interesting life. It was a very high-profile life, rubbing shoulders with social elites, world-class scholars, political leaders. But it seemed like he always felt more at home among the poor. And he always seemed to be striving to be humble and faithful. And as we also noted, he's not so much a theologian as he was a preacher. He didn't play a significant role in the theological controversies, but he did attempt to remain faithful in his preaching and it's that which had an indelible uh, impact on the church for generations to come. So his preaching. don't have as much time to uh, talk about his preaching as I would like, but um, anybody who's familiar with church history, if they just know his name, I think they know the one thing that he's associated with is his preaching. Um, and you might think, well, weren't all of the church fathers preachers, Augustine, Athanasius, Basil, etc. Yes, but they were oftentimes known more for their contributions to the theological discussions, for the treatises they were writing, and for the things they were weighing in on. And yes, they were influential preachers, but Chrysostom is the one who really stands out as the preacher of that age. So what made his preaching stand out so much? And I have six characteristics that stood out through my studies. And, and the first one is eloquence. Remember, Chrysostom is a nickname that was actually given to him after his death, meaning golden mouth or silver tongue. He was known for his eloquence. He had studied under the greatest of scholars at that time. And some of us might think, well, isn't that um, kind of contrary to Scripture? Isn't that contrary to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.17? For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. In the ESV, it says, not with the words of eloquent wisdom, or NIV, not with wisdom and eloquence, or NASB, not with the cleverness of speech. But I think we under, hopefully understand what Paul's getting at. Paul's not saying that we shouldn't try to be clear and compelling in our speech, in our, in our presentation of the gospel, but, it should not, but what we're presenting should not be of the wisdom of man. The power does not come from eloquence, but the power comes from the word of God. But that said, God does use men who have been gifted in their ability to speak clearly and compellingly and beautifully to present the truths of his scripture to his people and to be a great blessing to them. So we see that his pagan education ended up being turned around and used for God's glory. Because we see he wasn't just known for his eloquence, but he was also known for his simplicity. And this, these may seem to contradict one another at first, but Tony Reinke uh, states it like this. I don't suggest that John was a plain preacher. 
He trained under one of the greatest pagan orators in Libanius, and his sermons bear the watermark of oratorical greatness. However, he chose rather to open scripture in a simple manner, accessible to all his hearers. So it's not, while some may see a contradiction in these two ideas, eloquence and simplicity, Chris Hossam demonstrated that this, must not, this doesn't have to be the case. We could even go so far as to say that, really, that is the best speech. That which is both beautiful and clearly stated, that is also simple to be understood. And we see that in his striving towards simplicity, he wanted the word of God to reach the people of God. And he had showed his pastor's heart in that way. And we also, he's a biblical preacher. Now, you might think, well, isn't everybody preaching the Bible? Well, some people, as I think we've probably all experienced at points in time, can be, say that they're preaching from the Bible. They maybe even read a passage from Scripture at the beginning of their preaching, but then can very easily, quickly depart from what the actual text of the Scripture says. And I see some people smirking and the audience right now is that they can, are recollecting experiences of that, not from this church, but we've all been in other places uh, in which that was the case. So by biblical preacher, I don't mean merely that he opened up the scriptures at the beginning of his sermon, but that his, his preaching was characterized by a devotion to the meaning of the text and preaching what the text itself said. You can go online and find his homilies, his sermons, and it will be abundantly clear that that is what he did. Uh, he's, he's looking at the words of the scripture, saying, what do they mean? And then trying to apply them to the people's lives. I'm going to skip the next one, theological preacher, which is probably the least significant point of his preaching. Uh, but he was also a practical preacher. Like I just said, he's always looking at what is the message of the text, but also uh, trying to bring it to the people so that they can see how it applies directly to their lives. Uh, one scholar said that uh, he believed that Christian truth is not just a set of principles. It's also a practical program for everyday life. And despite his ascetic tendencies, he did not believe that spirituality was the preserve of a specially gifted elite, but the inheritance of every Christian. I do have one quote I want to read from him, just so you can get a sense of his heart for the people. Uh, I'm about to wrap up. But after preaching, going on, spending a lot of time developing what the text itself means, working through some kind of technical issues, he lifts up and tr talks directly to people, saying how the words of it minister to them. And he said to the people, suppose someone is struggling with perpetual poverty and at a loss for necessary food and often goes to bed hungry. He will receive ample consolation, learning by means of these words that God has not permitted him to be in poverty because he hate him or abandon him. For if these were the effect of hatred, he would not have permitted it in the case of Paul, who was of all men especially dear to him. He has the people in mind in his preaching. Yes, he's to the text, but he also strove diligently to see how that could be applied to the people's lives. And the last thing that I said marked his preaching was a political preacher. Now, I don't think, I don't mean political preacher and what might come to your mind first at first, as in a partisan, uh, 
partisan uh, preacher who uh, serves as an arm of a specific political party. But what I do mean is he was not afraid to address the issues of the day. He was not uh, afraid to address injustice in political practice. He was not afraid to uh, address politicians in their, especially politicians who cr claimed to be Christians, living lifestyles which were contrary to that which Scripture had called them to. So he was bold in his preaching. He said what needed to be said, even to the point of death. At the point of being cast into exile, he easily could have tamed his preaching down. It's said that his first sermon back after that first stint where he was almost sent into ex exile and then restored, that he compared the emperor's wife to Herodias. And, said, and so he was not afraid to be bold in proclaiming the truths of God's word and to faithfully be bringing the word of God to the people of God. Uh, there's so much more that could be said about Chrysostom, but hopefully you get the sense of this man, of his ministry, of his burden, and of the impact that he has had on the church since his time. With that, let us pray. Gracious Father, we do thank you for our blessing the church with faithful men through the centuries. We thank you for Chrysostom, though not perfect, a reminder that none of us are. Uh, may we be encouraged by the study in his life, and may you help us this day to set our minds on your word, even as we pray, prepare to hear it preached. Uh, bless us in this time. May your spirit be upon us. In Christ's name, amen. amen.